This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... World-building dumb politics. The Mammoth Bone Temple. Weird Detroit. And the First Sino-Japanese War. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with both guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a buck. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And in the gaming hut on the table, we've got laid out. Oh, look, Robin, it's a it's a fantasy city in the middle of a fantasy kingdom. And what's that in the middle of the fantasy? It's a statue, a big old statue of the ruler. And it looks just like this miniature of the of the ogre. That's odd that the ruler would be an ogre. They're generally not very apt politicos. Well, I'm sure that they're... St- oh, my God, Robin, look at their stats. They're <laughs> Literally, their only stat is shake people until you agree with me. Robin, what is this? What are we doing in the gaming hut normally? Normally, as you know, uh, in the RPG world, politicos, if they show up, are, are like Lord Vetinari, or at the very least, like Otto von Bismarck. They're skilled manipulators and Medici types and but Robin, politicians are idiots, and I guess we're once more allowing realism to intrude into the F-20 world where aldermen will knife you instead of refuse to fill your potholes. So what happens, Robin? What happens? Right. And not just the uh, the F-20 world, but I think all uh, role-playing world building where a politician is mentioned or a bunch of politicians are, are involved or there's intrigue. The standard description is this powerful character is uh, one of great cunning and never um, always thinks in three-dimensional chess and never makes a mistake. And uh, what about this uh, person? Oh, they're very calculating and cunning and clever. And this is certainly a staple of uh, vampire, for example. The yes. uh, characters there are always portrayed as extremely smart operators. And it's true of uh, a description of a fantasy city um, anywhere where... The politics is invented, as you suggest. People are unrealistically good at politics. And how often can can you think of a historical period where there was not just one clever person driving everything, but everybody 
uh, in the political world is is clever and and working at each other by inches. Uh, I'm sure I could come up with something. I guess as they say that that there has never been such a gathering of political talent uh, at the White House since Abraham Lincoln dined alone. <laughs> Although Seward was actually a pretty savvy operator, he just was completely outmaneuvered by a Kentucky pumpkin. So there we are. Um, I guess a lot of it, Robin, comes down to a couple of things. First. People who want there to be politics in the story, like, for example, if you want sports in your story, you're not going to have a mediocre football game as the centerpiece. You're going to have a really exciting football game with lots of very gifted uh, football players. Likewise, if you feel like politics should be front and center in your story, you want them to be practicing the art that the story is about well. Uh, the dance number doesn't come off if no one can dance. And I think the other part of it is there's a sort of a reaction to the very earliest RP settings, uh, most of them F20, in which the king was just a guy who was slightly higher level than you, and there was nothing preventing you from stabbing him and uh, throwing the, the GM's careful plan into a tizzy. And so GMs began to say, well, if you stab him, he's got operatives that will kill you or whatever. And eventually, this became the sort of Lord Vetinari figure that is uh, beloved in in song and story. Uh, the king who's who's seen three ways around the corner and is and is able to mess you up. And of course, you can explain some of that in a vampire context by saying, "Well, the vampires that have lived long enough to be running Detroit or wherever, Darwinian selection has taken the dumb, clumsy ones out. They've all been, you know, staked or bumbled around." and gotten fried in the sunlight. Although I think that in practice, a lot of people do play vampire Lords, at least in vampire games as sort of more insane monarch types, you know, giving, you know, orders that are just to feed their own manias, as opposed to, um, to actually help out even the vampire court, much less the city they ostensibly run. Right. Right. And also this, cliche, this trope of uh, everybody is clever Machiavellian is also found in uh, fictional portrayals of politics. So, uh, for example, House of Cards, uh, which I knew enough not to bother watching because I could <laughs> tell from the premise that it in no way resembled actual politics. And I've never seen a clip of it that resembled uh, actual politics in any uh, way. But that's the, like the, the, the mirror opposite of the West Wing, which is also not at all about actual politics. Yes, uh, that, that's a, you know, it's either a super cynical or a super idealized uh, version of uh, politics. And in part, I think that's, you know, the idea that everybody is uh, super sinister and smart also feel it feeds into that. The same thing that feeds conspiracy theory, which is the world has to make sense. Yeah. Reality can't be idiot plotted. Right. And in fact, uh, you know, in. In my neck of the woods, I would not say that currently everyone is an idiot. There's a couple of uh, clever uh, operators, uh, sometimes too clever by half, which is the, the downfall of politicians who are just smarter than everyone around them as mm -hmm. they get a little cocky and they turn out not to be so smart after all. I mean, the, 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 the longtime emperor of Illinois, Mike Madigan, he may not be a Medici, but he's certainly been able to run a political machine for generations and is only just now beginning to see the the, the, the tailing away of his power as he runs to the limits of what can be done in Illinois with a increasing budget deficit and a fractious caucus. But that you would have thought that would have happened decades ago after several not at all idiotic governors attempted to unseat him and failed miserably. So, yeah, I mean, if you look around your life, 
you can generally find someone who is, if not Otto von Bismarck, is at least persuadably good at the job of being a ward boss, right? Right. Or, or you could uh, click in guardianco.uk and look at UK politics currently <laughs> to pick on someone else's country for, yeah, uh, for a change. I mean, I mean the, the interesting thing about the UK, though, is that because it has that sort of vampire Darwinian status, I mean, people are always clawing at you from within your own party as well as the opposition. There's just the sort of like very, very, you know, front and center weaselry to British politics that I think even in other great parliamentary systems, they they don't have as much. I think de Gaulle, you know, mounted a whole coup d'etat to prevent that from being the distinguishing feature of uh, French politics. And in Italian politics, everyone is so weirdly bad at it that they accidentally, you know, appointed a not terribly incompetent person to be prime minister and are now stuck with him against their will. So all manner yeah. of fun. Although, although the UK seems to be sort of reverse Darwinism where it's like, <laughs> it's, it's more like the, the most qualified person to go over the hill in world war one, you know, <laughs> let's send our best person over into the machine guns. Okay. Who we got left. Okay. Who we got left. Oh, Boris. Uh, well, Robin, uh, because, be, because the real survival skill in British politics is convincing someone else to go over the hill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Find someone dumb enough to have the ambition to be prime right. minister when you've promised magical pennies that don't exist, which in, in fairness is how they actually ran world war one. So there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I chose that metaphor for a reason. Uh, so therefore though, uh, you know, we can look around and see lots of completely dysfunctional politics. We've mentioned a bunch of them, uh, UK, Italy. W will the US have a functional politic after a while? I, I don't know. We'll see. So how do we make it interesting in a game to have the idea that politics is more like the thick of it or Veep mm -hmm. than it is like uh, House of Cards or, or the West Wing? How do we, the players, I think, may have a sense of perhaps as they also are as voters of wanting things to make sense. But how do you make that uh, real and interesting to have sort of the the battle of uh, there's a system that throws up fools and goons the uh, the guy who ran the the machine for 30 years you know tripped on a turtle and is in a coma and now uh, all of the spavined weasels around him who uh, could survive previously simply by sycophancy now one of them is going to step up so the rise of the fredos yeah so now you could do skullduggery or any other intrigue related game where that's the point you're the characters all uh, vying with each other for comeuppance and destructiveness but in the context of something with a, a horror adventure or a straight-up adventure vibe where you're impacted by politics uh, how do you make that fun and interesting to be operating in a world where people are foolish and limited and uh, choose to believe the information that uh, suits them rather than uh, the real information that the adventurers just went to all the trouble to bring them. Uh, how do we wrap that into a, a world to make the world feel real in that sense? Well, in, that, in, in, in a world like that, first of all, I mean, part of the point of a horror game or most horror games is the, the authorities do nothing. That's why it's down to a random group of parapsychology students to stop the monster instead of the you know, police force is the police force is corrupt or unbelieving or, or both or incompetent. And, uh, you know, similarly with the city council of, of Arkham is, is run by a bunch of, you know, doddering old fifth generation 
Congregationalist divines. It's not run by, you know, uh, savvy technocrats, although the savvy technocrats, of course, create their own, you know, snarled up problems because they're going to build that subway right through the old burial ground, no matter how many warnings they get. And then so you have that as part of the fundamental assumption of the world is that the authorities are either useless or ignorant. And you just play into that. It's, it's like, great. We've, we've finally set this up so that this wizard will be buried here forever. You know, two adventures later, oh, the city's digging it up for some dumb reason. And when you look into it, it's for reasons of corruption or stupidity. And those are forces that even a Cthulhu investigator can't fight. But if you are in a genre or in a game where the players or the expect leverage or influence or results, then the way to do it is to have the levers that you push on be levers of venality. And, uh, it's like, oh, do you want the alderman to do something? Bribe him. Uh, do you want him to do something? Appeal to his vanity. Say, oh no, this is the, um, alderman partington pyramid that we're building it's in honor of your grandfather and of course it would be wrong to have it knocked down uh it's for your grandfather alderman partington and then alderman partington mindlessly protects your pyramid and he still does it because he's an idiot but you've figured out what will make him do a thing and even you know the 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 most random and goofy of of politicos generally unless they're you know clinically messed up like a roman emperor they will follow some version of their own self-interest, whether their self-interest, you know, in the short term, usually, but something that they will identify as this is the reason I'm doing that. And again, in, you know, most American cities in the Cthulhu era, that interest is a big wad of cash or a bunch of voters that you've convinced. So if you've saved the church two adventures ago, you go to the church and you get them all to turn out for an Alderman Partington rally. And now Alderman Partington says, oh, these guys can control the votes down in the, you know, St. Stanislaus precinct. And I'd better maybe uh, do what they want because they have a thing that I want. And then you can make a deal. And the Alderman will still try to, you know, backstab you or 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 chisel out or, or do something because he's still an alderman but you have now the possibility of man- manipulating him and and using him and that's what the players if they're interested in this kind of political game actually want is leverage on the leverage i don't feel like they generally demand that the uh, npcs be smart and clever they just demand that the npcs responses be somewhat predictable right right because in fact i think for a player it is frustrating to try to operate in a world where every important person is a skillful Machiavellian. Yeah, that's the, that's the other one of the other fail states of a vampire game is that there's no place for your for your coterie to operate because all the elder vampires have, have got GM's girlfriend syndrome and can do anything they want. Right. And part of that is that source books in particular are, are often written with the idea that this uh, situation is on a knife edge yet it constantly reverts toward the mean. <laughs> yeah, right. And so uh, a lot of uh, source books are, I think, misguidedly uh, designed to create a setting that has a sense of stasis to it. I think in part because people, if you sell somebody a source book and then another source book in the same setting, it gets weird if everybody has had a very changeable, fast-moving politics and then everybody's campaigns are incompatible with the second source book. And then they all get, they all get mad because you're, you've asked them to buy into a meta plot as opposed to a setting. Right. And that has its own problems. Yeah. Or their own generated plot doesn't, doesn't fit with your thing so that, right. You know, there is a, a, a reason to 
create a sense of stasis. But that is, as we have already said, frustrating for the players. Mm -hmm. So I think one way to kind of move toward a structure for this is to, for each political player who has influence that you need to, you know, you need to get X number of people on your side and how much you mechanize this and how much you just sort of hand wave how it works, of course, is up to you. But you could assign numerical values to all of these uh, political player influential NPCs that describe, for example, their uh, level of venality, uh, as you indicated. Also, their um, how ideologically uh, driven they are. It's quite common to describe characters who are rigidly ideological. Uh, but if we look at our history, those people do exist. But a lot of those very ideologically rigid people turn out to be grifters <laughs> with a strong negotiating position. So you want to indicate, you know, where are they on the believer charlatan axis? Mm -hmm. And then finally, the, you know, how much information are they willing to take into account? And or they may I, be, you know, very, very strongly ideologically committed, but just do something entirely counter to that ideology because they're you know, their, their self-regard says only I can, can guarantee peace by going and entering a European war to pick a president at random. Right. And, and so the, the ideology that drove Wilson is sort of a technocratic pacifism for which, of course, he in, embarks in, in, in uh, World War One and engages in the, in the ridiculous uh, level of uh, domestic militarism necessary to do that and without blinking an eye. And you might be looking outside of it as a player character and say, this is a contradictor. And you told me this was a pacifist leader. And here he is throwing opponents of the war into prison. But. Within the leader's mind, it makes sense because he's doing it in order to build a greater peace after the war. And the fact that he's betrayed every ideal he's ever held doesn't make him less ideological. It just makes him basically a human being. Right. And so the one number that I wouldn't that is sort of static for everybody is uh, every political player has a high self-regard or mm -hmm. a heavy ego. You don't you don't mess with that stuff unless you're you know, you have some sort of personal need. But, you know, some. I think egotists are more self-contained than others. So yeah. it's a matter of how susceptible <laughs> to flattery uh, yeah. the different characters are uh, and how much, uh, you know, you can play up there. Uh, I, I guess it's not a matter of self-regard, but they could have a needed, a neediness number from a low, low to high neediness. So, you know, the needy ones, you can win them over just with sort of uh, emotional bargaining. And also it is just as unrealistic to have everybody in a political system be utterly venal and cynical that uh, there are also genuine idealists who uh, want to accomplish uh, policy things and they're the ones who usually lose <laughs> because of all of the uh, venal people and the grifters and one of the mistakes the idealistic people take is taking what the venal people say at face value and uh, mirroring their behavior so the trick i think is to make it highly gameable so that you are uh uh, you know, that th the players know the goal, they know that, uh, and they are smart, right? That's mm -hmm. the way to do it, is that the players have the opportunity to be the smart people in the system, trying to manipulate all of the mulish, pig-headed, selfish, Peter Principle uh, lackwits that have uh, risen in the system. And you also, I think, want to describe why it is that the system is full of uh, moon calves, uh, which can be... Uh, it's a democratic system where the a lot of uh, voters who aren't really paying attention vote on uh, emotional impulse rather than uh, uh, character and policy. Or it could be an, an inherited uh, monarchy 
uh, which uh, historically occasionally throws up somebody good, but uh, very often. Or it can be the best of both worlds, like, you know, our good buddies, the hated British. <laughs> uh, yes, where the it's a democracy, but the uh, the talent pool is drawn from a very specific group of and, and people. Very inbred class system. Uh, in which, in which self-regard sometimes takes a, takes a role. So I think we've uh, come up with, with an idea of how to handle it, which is to attach some numbers to things and move them around. Uh, which is often the or at answer. least attach some le- some levers. Yeah, Le- levers and numbers. So I, I think having done that, we're well on our way to solving this problem. So it's, I think it's time for us to uh, head off in search of another uh, segment and or hut. The second edition of Mutant City Blues. By Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future, where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrane store. We stagger across the windswept steps. The grasses rattle back and forth. We stumble up through the cold air to arise, and before us, on the plain, why, it's the archaeology hut. And this time around, Ken, this is a very impressive and somewhat strange archaeology hut because it's made of mammoth bones, because uh, beloved Patreon backer Andrew Miller would like us to uh, cogitate upon the Mammoth Bone Temple discovered at Kostenki. Kostenki, which I thought I had written in my notes, yet I do right, not. Right. Kostenki, uh, which Kostyanki, is... Kostyanki, I'll bet, is how it's pronounced, actually. Probably, yes. Yeah. So this goes way back and is a, a very, very impressively, relatively newly discovered thing at this uh, well-discovered uh, site. There have been other structures over the years discovered that are made of uh, mammoth bones, but this one is the Mammoth Bone Temple to beat all Mammoth Bone Temples. Uh, Ken, can you describe it a bit for us? It's circular. We know that. Um, we obviously don't have the walls of the thing necessarily, but they've got they found enough of the pieces of it to know that it's a 40-foot circle or 40-foot in diameter circle. The walls seem very thick, several feet thick, and that they are made of at least 60 mammoths worth of bones. They don't know how it could have been roofed, with Stone Age technology. Um, I don't know how structurally sound or load-bearing the walls could have been. I feel like if you have uh, the kind of uh, alder trees that grow in the Don Valley or grew in the Don Valley during the Ice Age, which is when we're talking about 25,000 years ago, you could probably make a tent with mammoth skins that have been tanned and and scraped with with your stone scraper. You probably have a tent roof on the top of it. Um, we know that they were burning things there. Some archaeologists feel like the, the bones 
this was a spot where they would take large pieces of mammoth carcass and render them so that it was basically a fat rendering facility that was also probably ritual because it was it took a lot of work to build this very large complex which is obviously much larger than you need for any given mammoth rendering site as you say it's in a a spot where there have been human remains found and mammoth remains found all the way back in fact the word cost means bones uh it's bone town in the uh old russian and uh as early as peter the great people were going to Kostyanki and picking up elephant teeth and carrying them back, elephant teeth in quotes, carrying them back to Peter the Great and saying, look what I found. And they, their best guess was it was Alexander the Great's army of elephants that had gone up the Don River and, and died. Alexander the Great would have been happy to take credit for it, but it turns out, nope, it's mammoths. And they started digging out the mammoth bones in a scientific way in the 1920s and have been basically archaeologically excavating this stretch of the Don River uh, since then. The earliest sites are about 40,000 BC, give or take. They may be Neanderthal. They haven't found actual human remains. They've just found the signs of people working there. Uh, and then a super volcano near Naples blew up in 37,000 BC, covered the whole thing with ash. Uh, and by the whole thing, I apparently mean Europe. And then people came down and settled on that spot again and uh, may even have been building themselves ash-proof tents. They've found little bits of drill to indicate maybe they were putting holes in in mammoth hide to to hide under and building themselves a little hunker down at this spot, which was apparently a very great spot on the on the on the Don River. As I say, people have been you know gathering there for a millennia, and the elephants or the mammoths rather became both the locus of of uh, economic activity and and feeding activity because the the ice age meant it was not a a spot where you could do an awful lot of of, of food gathering, so. People were, were basically living on mammoth fat and I assume, you know, frozen berries uh, from the from Well, the also uh, root vegetables root because vegetables, uh, yeah. one of the things found uh, within the circle uh, are evidence of charred uh, vegetables. So uh, there was cooking going on inside the temple. And even way back then, uh, people knew how to trick vegetables into being uh, delicious by, mm-hmm. by charring them, by cooking them. Maybe that was where they discovered it. Maybe they were storing their pile of root vegetables too near the mammoth rendering thing, and the vegetables fell into the liquid mammoth fat, and everyone said, oh, all right, we're staying here. Uh, and, of course, feasting is a uh, a big part of, uh, if there's a, a ritual aspect to that, that eating food is, is a big part of ritual, and uh, the economic activity of gathering food and what you think your God is and what your God does for you are uh, closely intertwined. So I think uh, those of us with a pulpish frame of mind want to believe that perhaps they are uh, either worshiping the, the mammoth God who provides the mammoths. There's these, now, you wouldn't have gotten 60 mammoths worth of bones in one go because if uh, mammoths were anywhere near as smart as contemporary elephants, and there's no reason to believe that they aren't, they're pretty smart. And once you start uh, attacking one of them, the other 59 are going to run away. Yep. And if all you've got is a a pointed uh, wooden stick, it takes you longer to kill one of those 60 mammoths. Yeah. (laughs) One one mammoth is is a handful, as as we say in the uh, Neolithic business. Mm -hmm. And so the suggestion is that this uh, river was part of a migratory route for the mammoths, and uh, they would come by and, uh, you know, the first... Uh, the, the unlucky one heading out of the trench first would get hijacked and the rest would run off. But at any rate, mammoths would keep using this uh, this route 
I guess they're smart, but not smart enough to recognize a bone temple made from their bones. Yeah. Uh, that's outside. <laughs> they're, their... they're smart, but they're not superstitious. Robin. Yeah, that's, that's what it that's is. Outside they're their frame of reference. They're all like, no, 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 that, that can't be anything bad. That's just, you know, a, a funeral temple. What you have to understand is that death is really a trans. Ah! Ah! And so responsible archaeologists can only say to them, well, it looks like it probably has some sort of ritual purpose because of its scale. And, uh, you know, the fact that it had other economic purposes is not incompatible with that, but we just don't know. But, of course, here in the show, we're here to make make up what the archaeologists can only make up in private, aren't, aren't allowed to write down. But the archaeologists are too cowardly to tell you. Right. Or uh, so we can envision, Yeah. <laughs> so we can envision it as either it is a temple to the mammoth god who supplies X number of mammoths to the people every year as part of the, the deal, provided you build him an impressive uh, temple that shows respect for the gift that you gave him by repurposing the parts of it that you can't eat into a, a monument for him. Or perhaps... Uh, he is a uh, more uh, human-style hunter god, and the uh, the, the mammoths are, uh, you know, his gift to you, and you're not uh, worshiping them so much as you are uh, the uh, the culture hero who uh, helped uh, supply that to you. The great mammoth killer. Yes, but it is certainly a striking image and one that uh, you imagine in a fantasy world. Uh, you know, the intrepid heroes in the uh, unknown step, uh, you know, crossing the ridge, and there is this great. A mammoth uh, temple and you know when you see something made of mammoth bones you go at least it's not made of human bones yeah <laughs> we, we might be able to get some some roast carrots and some mammoth fat over there if we uh, know how to uh, talk to these uh, to these folks unless we've angered the mammoth and or hunter god in which case we'll, we're going to be in trouble i think that depends on you know how many uh delicious uh, herbs you've brought in your pack if you haven't brought anything then maybe it's time to have a little mammoth cassoulet with some people feet in it yeah you, you gotta you gotta bring some to get some exactly um, another interesting thing about uh Kasenki is that they recently uh did a dna analysis on uh one of the human skeletons found there and uh found something quite surprising so the uh, assumption until recently was that the modern european uh, mix of genetic materials uh, which come from three different populations from the north asians like the ones in the in the steps in this area, and indigenous uh, European hunter-gatherers and also a population from the Mideast, the assumption was that those populations sort of fused together about 5,000 years ago. Well, it turns out from uh, this period, just uh, just after the, the volcano, a thousand years after the volcano ash, they did a DNA analysis on uh, one of the skeletons. And guess what? All of those populations are already represented in that person's DNA. So uh, all the way out in Mammoth Temple uh, territory in Russia, you've got someone who has indigenous European uh, genes and Middle Eastern genes and could easily pass for a a citizen of uh, of Belgium or uh, Luxembourg. Down to the the, the thick layer of, of roasted vegetable fat. I guess the two possibilities are that this gives credence to the long-standing theory, mostly on linguistic grounds, that the Don Valley is the Ur-Heimat of the Indo-European population, uh, or it was a time traveler who was sent back or brought back to that time and accidentally didn't bring enough herbs and got himself, you know, chucked in the pot. <laughs> well, that that is why you always take basil with you on your own time journeys. Well, it's mostly buffalo grass, but that's for the vodka, really, more than for the mammoth temples. So, at any rate, we could envision an entire culture around the 
um, the worship of the uh, mammoth provider. You can either be members of that culture and uh, have to keep the mammoth happy, uh, or I think more likely you are members of an outsider culture who come along this one and have to rapidly figure out what's going on and which herb they would like because uh, the opportunities for multiple adventurers uh, because these people stay put. They, yeah. they stay where the mammoths are. Right. I mean, the uh, you could, if you were looking for a, a reason to run a game in this sort of ice age, paleolithic mammoth hunting venue, one fun thing, if you're pretending that this is where all the Indo-Europeans lived is to do all the Indo-European myths, but it's just you guys. So you're sent all the way down the river to the black sea to pick up, a, a sacred buffalo robe and you have to carry it all the way back. And that becomes Jason and the Argonauts. And you have to fight a bunch of monsters that are attacking the, 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 the village. And that becomes Hercules and also Beowulf. And so that could be a fun thing to do. And the, the fun of the GM is figuring out how to guise ancient myths in sort of, semi-realistic or at least naturalistic paleolithic adventure and then for the players to realize halfway through oh yeah we're doing freaking orpheus thanks so much you monster <laughs> and then that could be that could be a fun way to structure what is by i think most people's lights probably a pretty low tech even maybe low magic if it's just shamanism and summoning the the hunting spirit rather than you know full-on fireballs and whatnot but that would be a fun intellectual adventure to have while you're also figuring out logistics of a mammoth hunt. I mean, certainly in terms of big battle set pieces, oh, mammoth migration time, everyone get on the stick, literally, and, uh, you know, go after some mammoths. And whoever brings down the mammoth, they're going to be the number one chief of the mammoth temple for a while. You can finally get that, you know, um, uh, sharpened piece of star iron you've had your eye on. Uh, let's go. Yeah. Everybody make your saving throws against stomping against trampling. Yeah. Um, I, I, but again, I think that that, if you've got sort of a tactically minded player group, it could be fun to figure out how do we both cut out a mammoth and kill it and also maybe prevent the other war bands from hunting our mammoth or even killing their mammoth. And to what extent are we trying to hocus them with, um, uh, Maybe a little too much uh, shaky grass in the mammoth soup the day before. And that's Yeah, if, you, that's if you're fun. the clan that controls the uh, particular point in the river where the uh, mammoth bone temple is, uh, you want to make sure you uh, keep control of that. But that takes us back into politics, so I think it's time to move forward, forward, ever forward. Ever forward. Into our next scene. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through Keep us in mammoth bones alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Michael Kewell, Dreaming Johnny, Drew Clowry, Dan O'Hanlon, and Daniel Gill. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Craig Maloney asks Ken and Robin, It feels like Detroit goes unnoticed in many Cthulhu games. Is it not a hotbed of mythos activity? I like I like the local pride in saying, How come our city isn't actually being manipulated by hideous monsters? It's Detroit, for gosh sakes. And you know... Yes, we, we have turned this into a bit of a sub-segment that crosses... Many other segments, uh, but but we're not here to forget the Motor City. No, no, we're here to honor the Motor City, and uh, that could explain the lions. Who can say? Right. Um, I, I guess first of all, I should say Lovecraft never mentions Detroit, so there is no explicit canon that you have to follow if you are a canon-minded person. It does not seem like his kind of town. No, the closest we get is, it seems literally like the opposite of his kind of town. The, the closest that we get is that Colin Wilson beloved dilettante and Lovecraft and uh, Swadesant Lovecraftian uh, inserts mythos lore into Benny Evangelista's cult document, The Oldest History of the World. And you may remember Benny Evangelista from a series of hideous puppet-related murders uh, that we covered in episode 249. Um, and those occurred in 1929, right in the heart of Cthulhu time. So, if uh, you go back to that segment, I'm sure we had many, many brilliant ideas, although I don't know if we uncovered Colin Wilson's role in uh, their post-hoc uh, mythographing. And just uh, Detroit uh, is a tough town, always has been. It's a scary place for uh, people to live. And uh, the hollowing out of Detroit, the just flat-out abandonment of so many dwellings there uh, for a contemporary game, I think, suggests a setting like a, a sort of a Ramsey Campbell setting. So it seems like a great place to uh, insert his strain of the Cthulhu mythos. You know, mm -hmm. something Glacky related uh, going on in a stretch of uh, buildings where people are either squatting or no one lives there or except, well, there's a, there's a scuttling shape we see a lot, but we don't talk about that. And if you're going to the sort of uh, core Lovecraft era, the, the trail and uh, call eras, uh, there is, of course, wild stuff that happens in Detroit. Uh, there is a fellow who is a Baconian theorist, believes that Bacon wrote Shakespeare, and also in his spare time experiments with acoustic anti-gravity machines named Dr. Orville Ward Owen. He was a Detroiter. Those two things have the same level of foundation. To exactly. Them. Almost identical. And he even went to Wales in 1909. And uh, after a year asking permission, someone gave him permission to dig up a area in Chetworth where he thought the original Shakespearean manuscripts would be along with, for some reason, the head of Shakespeare. <laughs> 
Well, that because the uh, annoyed Francis Pagan cut off Shakespeare's head. Yes. And- well, he, he, he was he was dealing with an actor, so I, it's not like we don't understand where Bacon was coming from. But still, and, and uh, having dug around in in um, uh, Arthur Mackin slash Noden's country, he comes back home and is struck with paralysis in 1918 and stays uh, homebound until his death in 1924. So he makes a great sort of a Akeley type character. Uh, trapped in his house, whispering to you of his mad beliefs. Speaking of uh, people who are bad news, Aleister Crowley comes to Detroit in 1919 to annoy the local Freemasons and uh, spread the good word of the Thelemic Order. Uh, so I'm sure have, the Detroit uh, Freemasons, who undoubtedly are just a group of pranksters who talk about their different car dealerships, are very excited <laughs> Oh, yes. He was was a huge joy. Apparently, there was a chemist in Detroit making mescaline, and that's what, of course, drew Crowley there. His his mescaline mescaline habit was like, oh, perhaps these guys need an occult uh, hookup. And then uh, in 1932, there was another ritual murder in Detroit uh, conducted by a fellow named Robert Harris who was apparently a borderline or fringe member of the Nation of Islam, which came out at the trial and caused... Basically, it caused um, uh, W.D. Fard to leave Detroit because the publicity got too much. Um, he ritually murdered a fellow named James J. Smith with a silver dagger tied to a makeshift altar, what is described as a makeshift altar, um, which means probably a coffee table. But uh, anyway, if you're looking for uh, another uh, exotic crime that is uh, uh, different from the Evangelista murders, there you have that one. And apparently, I think the, the Detroit Free Press... Uh, said that it was a ritual cult voodoo murder, and the Detroit News said it was just a crazy guy stabbed another guy. Nothing to see here. So depending on which direction you're going, um, you have two contemporaneous versions of that of that case. And then in, in that same period, you have the the rise of the of the Purple Gang, a legendary sort of um, subcontractor criminals that used to go out and do murder for other gangs, and also. Uh, dominated the bootlegging trade, which, of course, Detroit being right next to Canada was uh, gigantic during Prohibition. And so the the Purple Gang didn't quite set themselves up as the Capones of Detroit, but you couldn't do anything in Detroit without the Purple Gang there to to, to help you out and take their share. And uh, a little later in the 80s, as as, uh, Detroit, of course, features in the uh, imaginations of those of us who live in Ontario, you just have to go drive through Windsor and get to Detroit. And in the 80s and 90s was sort of the heyday of uh, Hell Night, uh, where famously the night before Halloween, uh, arsonists and rioters would uh, run purge-like through uh, Detroit. So you can uh, easily backdate that and have uh, a a mythos-infused bacchanal of destruction occurring on October uh, 30th that uh, is getting, or just something that uh, the local troublemakers are doing that will uh, disturb your investigation, which just happens to be uh, on October 30th. Um, And uh, also, though, I think this is not strictly mythos until we dig into it, but uh, Detroit, of course, is the home of Alice Cooper, the discarnate entity that occupies the body of Republican golf enthusiast uh, Vince Furnier. Uh, He was born in Detroit, raised there until he was uh, 11 or 12, then uh, headed off to Phoenix. Uh, those of you who know your Alice Cooper lore at this point are going to be saying, but but Robin, we know that uh, he originally uh, possessed Vince 
uh, in an Ouija board ritual in Los Angeles? And the answer is, well, no, he was with Vince all along, and just the Ouija board allowed him to complete uh, the transformation that uh, brought him to the stage. We know that what Alice Cooper wants us to do is uh, he wants to welcome us to his nightmare, therefore suggesting that he is an entity uh, from the dreamlands. Uh, and uh, I would think that, uh, uh, you know, when he's inviting you to a nocturnal vacation, then in fact, he is inviting you to a particular part of the dreamlands. And that would be, uh, I'm going to say Thalarion. Uh, and I'm going to say that Alice Cooper is actually the mysterious entity Laffy that haunts the uh, the outskirts of Thalarion and that uh, the people there uh, sort of uh, worship and fear. Uh, and undoubtedly, uh, during his complex stage performances where he uh, plays uh, Bob Ezrin produced 70s rock and plays with the guillotine. And uh, you can uh, have foreshadowings of the of the Alice Cooper uh, entity or of the connections to the dreamlands in your fall of Delta green game. If you investigate any of the many UFO sightings that occurred in Detroit in the fifties and sixties, and uh, it was a place with a lot of people. And so therefore it was a place with UFO sightings. It had a fairly celebrated one in 1963 and uh, many other less celebrated ones uh, all around the decade. So lots of possibilities uh, for that. And I guess we should also mention that Detroit uh, has uh, not one, but two uh, genius loci. Uh, there is the Nan Roge, the Red Dwarf. Uh, no relation, I suppose, to the TV show, although why not? Um, and it brings misfortune and death because, of course, it's, uh, you know, Detroit. Uh, and then there's also a snake goddess on the island of Belle Isle. And perhaps that is an aspect of Yig or it being a goddess of Shubnagurath. So you have your sort of old powers that existed in the islands. Cadillac, the guy who founded Detroit, the French explorer, you know, died. I don't know if it was mysteriously, but it was certainly suddenly. And uh, perhaps he, you know, angered one or both of those, um, uh, one of those figures and was a, uh, and was an early encounterer of the, of the fringe mythos. Certainly you can have any number of French colonial hangovers uh, that, uh, that linger down to the present in the same way that, the Puritan colonial hangovers linger down in, in your Arkham's and your Innsmouth's. Uh, well, I think that's uh, enough horror and gloom to uh, brighten up uh, any era of Detroit. And uh, that's, I think we can uh, close up the question uh, area and uh, let's see if there's uh, I think I hear some, some clacking and whirring. Let's see what that's all about. Hmm. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, 
There is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send him back in history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And uh, this time around, we're going to look at something that is happening during the time frame of uh, Dracula and of the Paris uh, segment of The Yellow King in 1894 to 1895. But it's over uh, in another area of the world because, uh, Ken, Time Incorporated wants you to look into what would happen if the first... Sino-Japanese War is averted. So, Ken, tell us, first of all, what in our timeline the first Sino-Japanese War was. Well, it was a war, as you can perhaps suss out from the name of it, between China and Japan. China at that time under the Qing Dynasty, the, the Manchus. And the war was basically over who got to run Korea. Korea being the country in between China and Japan, as it had been for uh, eons and eons and eons. And up until the time of the war, it had mostly been a Chinese dependency. And Hideyoshi invaded Korea back in the 1590s and got uh, wrecked by a Korean admiral, and it was very exciting. And after that, the Japanese went off in a huff and said, fine, if you won't cooperate, we won't invade anybody for uh, 300 years. And then they got antsy again. And uh, as they were looking over at Korea, Korea is meanwhile also getting antsy at being a Chinese corruptly run appanage and is beginning to uh, clear away uh, the detritus of its more uh, corrupt medieval era. And so you have a rising figure named the Daewon Jun, or Daewon Gun, who was, uh, that's a general title, but he was such a effective one. It's like the godfather. You, you, you always know what one you mean. And uh, he uh, attempted to create an independent Korea that would uh, accept only the best of uh, Western science and none of Western belief. And he basically took advantage of the fact that the uh, emperor of Korea or the king of Korea had died uh, without a male heir. And so there was a lot of uh, chicanery around picking the new heir. Uh, they finally figured out who to pick as the new heir. He was a 12-year-old boy. And they and uh, the, the godfather, the Daewon Gun, said, well, this is a great opportunity for me to reign in his name and uh, clear away all the all the brush and deadwood. And in the course of doing so, he found a wife for the king uh, who was not connected to any of the court factions, a figure who would be named uh, Queen Min in uh, most uh, historiography that I looked at anyway. And he said, Queen Min seems great. I'll marry her off to the king. She's a young girl. He's a young boy. This is going to be terrific. I'm going to be able to run Korea to my uh, desires forever. Well, sadly, he picked possibly one of the most badass people in the history of Korea because Queen Min comes in, first of all, with a raft of relatives from nowhere. Um, they're all very ancient titles, but they hadn't had any court clout for centuries, but they were going to fix that. And then she immediately began, uh, working to overthrow the day one gun and toss him out of power so that she could run things. And she, for better or for worse, was a fan of westernizing in a lot of different ways, although uh, not quite as fast as the most fanatically pro-westernizing parts of society were, who eventually attached themselves to the Japanese. 
Um, the Japanese being the best example at the time, this being the 1870s and 1880s of a country that had westernized itself almost into unrecognizability as a result of the Meiji uh, Restoration. So there's a Japanese faction that calls for even faster restoration. Queen Min is trying to build Korea into an independent, westernized, but not as westernized as the Japanese want it to be country. And the Chinese, meanwhile, are dithering in corruption, but they're also the guys right nearby with the big army. And uh, the Korean army is small, and it is also very, very outmoded. There's about a thousand people who've been trained in modern warfare by the Japanese. Probably a mistake to train your army uh, in the uh, in, in the forces of the nearby power, but there we are. And after a very long series of machinations and backstabbery, in which every so often Queen Min would encourage people to go loot the Japanese embassy to, you know, blow off their steam at how badly Queen Min's relatives were ruining everything. The Japanese used that as a pretext slash got sick of it and invaded Korea. The Chinese moved in to fight them and the Chinese got beaten horribly because they, of course, were fighting with the sort of creaky, badly run uh, Manchu military. And the Japanese were fighting with a westernized, in fact, in many cases, Germanized military uh, and uh, modern Navy and et cetera, et cetera. Just like uh, the Chinese had been beaten by the British in the Opium Wars, uh, they got beaten by the Japanese in the Sino-Japanese Wars. And the effect was that China had been able to explain to itself that whatever Western barbarians did didn't matter. But Japan was supposed to be a, a respectful tributary state, and for them to defeat the emperor looked very much like the mandate of heaven was slipping away. And so the Manchu uh, ferment uh, created, among other things, the Boxer Rebellion and uh, the rise of Sun Yat-sen and the Chinese uh, Republican movement, which uh, eventually swept away the, the Qing dynasty as the other uh, Western powers, realizing that uh, Japan had declared it an all-you-can-eat buffet, jumped in to carve up China in, in their own interests and create uh, the, the stretch of colonies up and down the coast of China. That, that, for example, Hong Kong, which had already been a colony, got it to expand into the new territories, the Germans, the French, um, the Russians all uh, uh, took pieces of, of, of China as, as their own port and colony. They began to build uh, proprietary rail railways uh, from their colonies to the Chinese interior and basically turned the process of, of looting China into an organized business instead of the free enterprise system it had been before. And that was the basic outcome. Right. So just the Boxer Rebellion alone uh, has an incredible death toll. Uh -huh. uh, there's... Uh, extraordinary upheaval and uh, tumult in various directions. So I guess the question is, uh, were you to avert uh, the first Sino-Japanese war? First of all, how would that come about? How would you avert that? The way to avert it is to make a, basically to create a truly independent Korea before Japan really starts feeling its oats. So that by the time Japan starts wanting to throw its weight around, Korea is back in the situation it was in the 16th century when it kicked the Japanese tail and knocked them back into the ocean. And at the very least, that involves Queen Min not having a bunch of relatives. So I'm not sure that in a mass poisoning is necessary, but perhaps maybe just a different bride, a different orphan with fewer relatives or more honest relatives or um, that Queen Min is persuaded somehow to purge her um, uh, her, her most hideously corrupt uh, relative, the one who uh, issued sand instead of rice to the army uh, at a very poorly chosen time in Korean history, get him knocked out before 
basically the entire Korean military becomes disaffected and um, uh, Queen Min is forced, as I say, to call out mob justice over and over to keep her uh, position intact. So really, we're looking at just a more airtight prenup. Yeah, we're looking at a at a much more airtight prenup or uh, at the very least a um, an ongoing series of tweaks. There is a a point at which I feel like maybe something could have happened. Uh, the United States is the, it turns out, the first country to establish diplomatic ties with Korea besides Japan, um, which uh, does so basically at gunpoint. And then the Koreans are looking around saying, well, if people are going to be pointing guns at us, we need a, a big friendly power that is conveniently far away. And they picked America and signed a naval treaty and peace treaty and trade treaty with America in 1880. And, um, uh, or they signed the treaty in 1882. They negotiated it from 1880 to 1882. And the American power projection capacity in the 1880s was not great. Uh, basically we were brought in as a, as a counterweight to Japan and, and Russia, but one can imagine a sort of eccentric American shipbuilding steel working millionaire uh, maybe a, a, a distaff Carnegie of some sort who realizes that Korea is just sitting on a bunch of unexploited coal and iron and people who are eager to not know about labor unions. And possibly you get a jump start on the Korean uh, uh, industrialization process if, as a result of this treaty, um, there is an American naval base or a naval uh, station at least allowed at Seoul and Suddenly, there have to be Americans to provide it with coal. And, oh, look at that. We can build coal mines. We can build railways. We can do that. So I'm not saying turn Korea into an American puppet state, although, of course, there would be Koreans who would have very much thought that was what was happening at the time. But given the real the real ability of America to project power in 1880, which was pretty much nil, it would have been maybe possible uh, with a great deal of pre-planning and a lot of soju being drunk to set up a situation where either the more honest relatives of Queen Min or the even more honest relatives of a different uh, Korean princess, although I, I got to say she was probably on balance not great uh, as a human being, but she was really good for Korea. She definitely had a vision of what Korea needed to become and just didn't care what happened on the way to the vision. So I feel like we, there can be a workaround with Queen Min. She's 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 just a kid from the provinces, by gosh, Robin. Yeah, just just scapegoat a couple of those uh, relatives. Exactly, and that's the good thing about having a big family is you can always execute one instead of you know have, sending people down to loot the Japanese embassy. Just chop off the head of your uncle. You wanted to do that anyway. He was a jerk, <laughs> and, and so I feel like if there is a burgeoning American naval base, coaling station, whatever you want to call it, at Incheon, and an American railway company and coal mining company and steel foundry springing up maybe that makes the japanese look askance at trying their luck in korea and it maybe filters into china in such a way that uh the chinese don't so the, the, the emperor doesn't so catastrophically lose face over it that you get something like the boxer rebellion that instead you get the sort of slow disintegration that the manchus had been doing since you know 1800 give or take uh, just accelerated even more. Um, you probably don't even get necessarily another Taiping Rebellion type situation, which is still the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, pretty much. Um, but you just have the Manchus uh, disintegrate until uh, they are either replaced by uh, Sun Yat-sen, who is still going to 
you know, show up for broad geopolitical reasons or political ec- economic reasons, or you get, you know, a genuine trade off of, of a, of a new dynasty that replaces the, the Manchus with only a, a modicum of a welter of blood. And so uh, those uh, who know their Korean history knows that Korea has a rough century yeah. ahead of them from this point. Uh, does uh, your timeline uh, help them out? Well, I feel like if, again, uh, and this is a very, very big ask. This is not quite alien space bats, but it is a big ask to have a node of industrialization in Incheon driven by American investment in the 1880s. I suspect there will probably be British banks involved as well. And I think it's possible that uh, with the Japanese being warned off of invading Korea by America and Britain, you have a situation in which there is absolutely going to be a showdown between the Japanese and the West because the Japanese entire national movement is building to that. But if the showdown is over Korea as opposed to over Hawaii, and if the American Navy is pre-positioned there instead of the Russian Navy, I feel like that war in 1905 goes entirely differently. And the Japanese sort of get their, their, their noses slapped by, uh, the, the Pacific powers. Korea at least is spared Japanese occupation. And then once that happens, I, I think that without the Pacific War, uh, in the form that it took, there's no excuse for the Soviets to invade Manchuria and Korea, no matter how what's going on in the in, in the European theater, right? So there wouldn't be a north half of Korea that's uh, under communist dictatorship either. Um, so that sounds like the the kind of thing that uh, is one of them uh, good timelines that you might be uh, actually asked to go and effectuate. Yes, it, the, the trouble, as I as I have alluded to, is that it is a tough road to hoe because you have to get a progress-minded but still traditional Korean aristocrat to sanction the, not casual, the entirely deserved execution of her relatives uh, and the seeming diminution in her power that that would create. You have to convince a generally non-imperialist at that time, United States, or at least imperialist within its own boundaries, to start with with a speculative blue sky investment project on the other side of the world. There's a lot of moving parts that have to go in before you can have an independent, strong Korea uh, in the 1880s and 1890s. But without it, as you say, you get um, some of the worst things that have ever happened from the the Boxer Rebellion down to the Korean War uh, and everything in between and around that. So... I, I think it's it's worth a try, but it is a it is a long investment, and I, I, I do have to drink a lot of soju to make it happen. Well, so if next week the uh, episode uh, has a soju hut, and uh, you look at your history books and uh, uh, things went in a uh, much more salubrious fashion uh, in uh, Korea and, uh, and China, you'll know that Ken went and did uh, his thing. And if not, you'll know that we're still here every week with a podcast much like this one. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep us making cars and bars by chipping in alongside such motorific backers as... Ernest Muller. Garrett Fitzgerald. Hyperlexic. John Buckley. And Keel Oh, hey. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Acquire our best loved design, Time Incorporated, changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, uh, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>